We should be very careful about artificial intelligence. We are summoning the demon. Hey, welcome back to another episode of Babylon Singularity. I am your host, Peter Herter. Today, we're going to be jumping into Exodus chapter 20 and Exodus chapter 32. But before I get into that, I just want to open with a word of prayer. God, I look to you. I lift my eyes to you. God, I humbly come before you and ask you to use me for your purposes and to say the things that are on your heart today. God, I ask you to wash me of sin, make me new in your Holy Spirit today. And God, I ask for those who are listening to this podcast that they would hear you and draw near to you, God, in their heart, and that you would draw even nearer to them in this hour. Lord, I just ask you that your Spirit would be poured out beyond measure. God, we just ask for a renewal in the United States of America. We ask for a revival in the church. We ask you that your saints would be on fire for you, God, rightfully so. Jesus, you deserve a people that are wholeheartedly on fire for you. That is the proper response, but God, we don't know how to properly respond to you. Our darkness and our sin um, drives us into dead ends of destruction, God, but you save us time and time again. You are worthy that you would have a people that proclaim you fearlessly. You are worthy that you would have a people that worship you with all of their hearts, that live in the light of your word and give you glory and honor and praise and walk with you, walk with you, that know you and that you know, God, you are worthy of it. You died that you could have it and you will have it and you will have it in the strength of your spirit by your spirit. It will be done. So, Jesus, we look to you right now for this podcast, and we give you this episode, and we ask you to walk us through your word, open your word to us, help us to see you fresh, to see you new in your word. God, we ask you to stand forth and be exalted in our hearts as we encounter you, that our hearts would move in right ways towards you, to love you more, and to serve your saints, to be a servant just like you to serve the lowliest, to serve all, just as you did and you do. We want to learn from you. We want to be like you in every single way. We want to be transformed through your word. And we ask you for the encounter of your spirit and the truth of your word to change us, to fashion the image of Christ more and more in us, even until the day we meet you face to face. And we are known by you, and you say, enter, my friend. We look forward to that day. And we say to you, we have done only what it was our duty to do. It was your spirit, your strength, your provision that made it all possible. God, you did it, and we were just glad to be part of your great story. So reveal your story to us, God. Show it to us. And help us to live in light of your word, that we would go forth into this world to shine forth your word. And that this world would be challenged. That your word would be proclaimed in conviction to, to repentance, to salvation. And many who would encounter you because of the word we bring. That they would otherwise 
not hear and see. Help us to do that. Help us to be your word in this world. Jesus, we look to you. We look to you. We look to your word. We look to your power and we trust you with it. Father, we give you all the glory and all the praise for all the good things you will do through this episode, this podcast. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So the last uh, few episodes, we, we started out in Genesis 3 with the serpent and his indirect method of getting control over Adam and Eve. He tempted them with a lie. He told them, you know what? If you want to be like God, the, the best pathway, the pathway that I myself have chosen is the pathway of superior cognition. If you want to know like God knows, if you want to be aware and perceive to have the ability to think like God, then you'll be truly just like God and you'll know good and evil. And so Adam and Eve took Satan up on that promise and were immediately expelled from the garden. And they have lived outside of the garden ever since. That is, until a way was opened. So ever since Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden, they wanted back in. They want back into heaven. I mean, we had it pretty good back in the garden. We lived the life of a God in many ways. We communed with God face to face. We had it perfect. We were living the perfect life until we took Satan's lie and believed the serpent instead of our creator. And ever since we did that, we have been expelled from that place, that perfect place, that paradise that God set up for us to live with him forever in. But we haven't taken our exile lying down. We've, we've wanted back in. We want to get back into that place of, the, that place of paradise, that heavenly existence that is the rightful plane of the God's. And God would create a plan to answer that need, because that is a real need. We need to get back. But how will we go about it? That is the question. The story of our existence outside of the garden hasn't been a pleasant one. As it turns out, we're actually a pretty evil lot, and... Don't ask me how, the details on this. There's there's many others who understand this better than I do. I haven't I I haven't looked super closely, nor do I claim any expertise in the events of Genesis six, when God decides that the world has become so irredeemably wicked that the only answer for it is to cover it with water and wash it like you would wash a filthy basketball at, with a hose. Basically, this thing is so far gone that the only way I can fix this is basically put, put the hose to it and, and wash it clean off. Everything that's on it, I'm going to wash clean off. Of course, he didn't wash every single thing off of it. He spared a very, very, very small percentage of each species, including mankind, who was the ones who wrecked it in the first place. But unfortunately for the animals, there wasn't room for all of them, so they got to get two of each species, right, so that they could go on and, 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 and keep the species alive. But with man, we got six. It was, at, it was Noah and his wife and a couple of Noah's no, it was more than that. It was eight. It was eight. Because uh, Noah had three sons. Three sons and three wives. Yep. So it would have been eight. Eight human beings made it on the board on the boat. I gotta be careful. I'm from Minnesota. If I if I say boat the wrong way, I'll never live it down. So I gotta be careful. <laughs> My inner Minnesotan doesn't pop its head at the wrong time. Wow. Frightening. So we have Genesis six. 
and our existence outside of the garden. We basically become so evil so quickly, God's like, I'm going to just wash this whole globe off with water. I'm going to spare eight humans and one, uh, a pair of each of the, the other species on earth and somehow put everything on a boat and when the flood subsides, allow, empower, supernaturally ensure that the human race goes on. And, and you know, only God knows how to put these sorts of pieces together. <laughs> so it's a, you look back at it, you're like, uh, how did that happen? Um, how does the universe get knit together with uh, words? How does a being dream up all that is and execute it with his wisdom and the power of his word? When you start to ask questions like that, then the questions about a flood um, seem pretty simple. Like, well, he just spared a few dudes and uh, kept the train rolling down the tracks of humanity. It is the Genesis 1 God that we serve. And when we're serving a God of Genesis 1, then you quickly realize anything is possible with this one. If he's knit everything together, no matter how much we think we understand it, this God is so far beyond us in every way. But he knits this uh, story together. We are involved with it. And since Genesis 6, the flood, the days of Noah, very quickly after that, humanity again gets back together and decides, hey, we're going to we're going to get back into heaven. We lost Eden, but you know what? We look up in the clouds. That looks about the closest thing that we have on this earth as some sort of heavenly reality. We need to get up there and we need to take our place with the gods. We're going to call this place the gateway of the gods. And we've learned these new techniques of cement and, and mortar and and um, and brick making. And we have these amazing new materials to create bricks and, and cement them together. It's, it's the latest technology. We're going to use our technology and we're going to build ourselves literally into the sky and take our place among the gods. And we will finally get back to the place where we belong. It was heaven on humanity's terms. God comes down and sees humanity doing this. He says two things. He says, this is only the beginning of what they will do, that they will keep trying and trying and trying, and that anything that they imagine will become possible to them. They're going to keep trying, and there, there is no limit to what they will be able to do. So eventually they will be able to create a real gateway of the gods on their own terms. And I and God was saying that he was not going to allow that to happen right after Noah's flood. So he confused the languages and dispersed the people so that they couldn't do what they were trying to do. So that's Genesis. I'm, I'm giving you a quick review of the last few episodes, right? So we had uh, Genesis 3 with uh, the snake and the serpent and uh, Adam and Eve. And then we have Genesis 11 with the Tower of Babel. And then we talked the last episode about Genesis 28 and the dream that Jacob had. He fell asleep one night and he has an encounter with God, but his encounter is, is of a level and magnitude that boggles the mind even to this day. It's, it's beyond us in so many ways. He's, he has a dream of a staircase that goes up to heaven, reaches into the earth, and there's angels walking up and down on this staircase. He wakes up, he says, God, was, God is here and I didn't know it. I, had, I just had an encounter, basically saying, I just had an encounter with God, and God was a staircase. Just like Moses would have looked at the, at the, the burning bush and said, I had an encounter with God, and God came to me in a burning bush. Well, God came to Jacob in a staircase. And we find out in John chapter 1, 
that Jesus identifies himself as that staircase. He says to his disciple, who he's calling to follow him, he says, you will see greater things than this, that you will even see angels ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Jesus says, the ladder that Jacob saw, it's me. When Jacob woke up from that dream about the staircase and said, God is in this place, and he named the place Bethel, the house of God, the presence of God, where God lives. The Bethel of God is Jesus Christ. It is, Jacob said, the gate of God, the entrance point of God into the earth. The entrance point of God into the earth is Jesus Christ. And that is the answer to Adam and Eve's plight outside of the garden. They have been driven out by their sin. No amount of technological advancement or building will ever get them back in. They can't build their way back to Eden. It's impossible. The way is closed. But here comes Jacob's ladder. And makes an entry point. But it doesn't come through human pride and achievement. It doesn't come through humans puffing out their chest and saying, we will take our place among the gods and our name will go on with great renown. No, there's only one whose name will go on with great renown and his name is Jesus Christ. Oh, his name is Jesus and he is the Christ. (laughs) I don't want to confuse anybody. It wasn't Jesus, and his last name was Christ. Christ means Messiah, the anointed one, the chosen one, the, 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 the promised one, the deliverer. It was, his real name was, you know, Jesus ben Joseph, right? The, Jesus, the son of Joseph. But his, who he was, was Jesus, the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Savior, the Deliverer, Jesus. He is the stairway that Jacob saw in his dream. And so now when we see humanity once again thinking that we can take our technology and build our way into God-like cognition, even farther than that, into some sort of heavenly utopian bliss, that we can somehow build our way back to Eden, it's the same old lie. It's the same lie the serpent told Adam and Eve in the garden, you want to be like God, he said, eat that fruit and you'll think your eyes will be opened. You will have new perception, new awareness, and you will be like God. He says, you want to be like God, do it like me through superior intelligence. So humanity once again trying to build our way back into that lost place. But Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever, is saying, I'm holding out my hand to anyone who wills. Anyone who wills to be saved. So if you do not know Jesus Christ like you would know a real person, a person that you interact with, but unlike any person that you know, if you don't know this Jesus, if you don't know what I'm talking about right now, you're lost. You're in darkness. There's only one light that can save you. Your fear, your confusion, your despair are all the result 
of your spiritual condition. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what you've said. It doesn't matter what you've done with your body. You can turn from sin and death right now and take hold of Jesus Christ and his blood will wash you clean as if you never sinned in your life. And you will have a new relationship. All you have to do is call out on his name, call him, cry out to him. Let your heart reach out to your creator. Ask him to save you. So this episode, I want to uh, move forward, move the conversation into Exodus 20. I don't feel like I need to spend a lot of time in this text to make the point that I want to make. So, after the Tower of Babel, and you have Jacob and his dream, very quickly you have Egypt moving into the story, and you have Joseph, despised by his brothers, rejected by his brothers, thrown into a well by his brothers, and then sold into slavery by his brothers, ending up in Egypt and being the most powerful man outside of Pharaoh himself in Egypt. This changes the course of Israel, the nation of Jacob. It is in Egypt that they thrive and succeed just like the tribe of Jacob always does with the blessing of God upon them. Their numbers grow and grow and grow until one day Pharaoh decides, a different Pharaoh, a Pharaoh that doesn't remember Joseph or anything that Joseph ever did for his nation. A new Pharaoh rises up and sees all these Hebrews and decides it's time to cut them down and drowns the firstborn baby boys in the river. And when he does that, he seals his own fate. For God will answer a man who does an atrocity. And not just an unthinkable atrocity, but to do it against his chosen. To take the baby boys of his chosen and to throw them into the river. Is it a disregard of God, his commands, his glory, and his power? The most fundamental level, and God will answer. And when this happens, Moses is raised up, he delivers Israel. He plagues Egypt's, Egypt, and he kills the firstborn of all the Egyptians. God leads the nation of Israel through the sea and takes them to a mountain where, <laughs> it's, I shouldn't laugh, it's not, it's not funny, but it's, it's ironic. God, in his glorious mercy, delivers the Hebrews from the hand of the Egyptians so that they could go to a mountain and worship him because he had an encounter for them. He wanted to encounter them. He wanted to show them his glory, his goodness. He led them you know, with a pillar of fire at night, a, a, a cloud by day. He led them through the wilderness and, and brought them to Mount Sinai where he would speak to them 
and they decided this whole situation was so freaky for them that they 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 couldn't stand the idea of actually encountering God on this mountain. So, like God's whole plan, like, I, I speak lightly and carefully, but God's plan to take them up to the mountain runs into serious resistance from the people He's just delivered. The people say. Uh, without any regard of, wow, God, you did all this. Wow, God, we worship you. Wow, God, whatever you want to do and whatever you say is has amazing things for letting us be a part of this. And boy, if you kill us, you'll kill us. Um, but we're gonna we're gonna worship you and encounter you and 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 uh, and we're gonna want your will to be done. Instead of that kind of response, they they basically freak out and say, this is insane. We're not going on that mountain because we're going to die, right? Or, or, or some version of that where they, they refuse God's invitation. And so God just invites Moses up and says, okay, well, I guess it's just me and you, Moses. And he has this encounter with Moses where he basically lays the bedrock for what he wants from his people, some basic guidelines that would draw some boundaries that would basically serve as some really great uh, foundations for human law and human um, society and, and civilization. And I'm not going to get into all of the details of, of all the commandments because they're, they're glorious and good. I'm really going to zero into the first command that just comes right off the bat. It's the first thing he says. So um, I'm going to be in Exodus chapter 20 here. Reading verse 1. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. So God comes out and identifies who he is. He says, I am the God that just delivered you from Egypt. I'm the one who went before you. I'm the one who did all these amazing feats miraculous power that's me that's who i am it says i delivered you from slavery he says you shall have no other gods before me now don't read that wrong don't 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 take it like solomon took it where he's like okay um as long as you're the most important god um then i can have a few other gods before or uh um beside you or other god lesser gods kind of in the picture that are kind of subordinate to you because you're the main God, and then there's these other gods that we kind of do because, you know, well, when you're married to, you know, 300 different women from, you know, 20 different nations or whatever it is, you've got all sorts of different gods you've got to kind of put in the equation there. So that was the, the route Solomon went, but that's not what God is saying here. He says, you will have no gods before me. Not in the sense of don't have any other gods that are more important than me, but in the sense of don't have any gods in my sight of you. When I'm looking upon you and your life, don't have a single God that sets before me. Not in between me and you, but that's even in sight, in my sight. Have no gods sitting before me that I can see in your life. An easier translation, maybe an easier way to understand it, is basically saying, have no other gods beside me. I am I am the one and only. I am your one and only. You only have eyes for me. I am jealous to have your full affection 
and I'm concerned for your welfare that if you worship other gods, they will destroy you. And I don't want that for you or for me. God is worthy that we would be his one and only. He doesn't share his throne with another. And it's not right for anyone to think that way. And God is setting the record straight. He's saying, I'm your God. I'm the one who delivered you from slavery. I'm the one who worked mighty miracles to deliver you out of Egypt. Have no other gods before me. Have no other gods beside me. I am your one and your only. But then he goes into greater detail of what he's talking about, just in case we're not clear, right? Like, um, you know, we, we might think like, okay, um, well, you, we aren't supposed to have gods, but what if we, you know, carve something and then um, bow down to it? Well, God's going to basically lay it out here and leave no mistake of what he's talking about as far as not having any gods before him. He says, You shall not make for yourselves a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. There is one God, there is one throne, there is one heaven, there is one Savior and deliverer. There is no others. And with this being the case, God says, don't have any gods before me. Do not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath. God starts out by saying, don't carve anything that's in the likeness of anything created. Don't look at the moon up there or the sun and go, oh boy, if I just had a moon or a sun here in my hand, then I could put it on an altar and worship it. And then that thing would give me really good luck when it comes to getting good um, harvests or having lots of children. God says, don't make a carved image. Don't carve yourself an image. What is a carved image? I mean, back in the day, you would take a rock and make it look like, I don't know, whatever the thing it is that you're trying to make it look like. It would be based on something they would see, either up in heaven or in the earth or something maybe they would see under the sea. They'd see some strange fish or something and decide, like, the Assyrians in in Nineveh, like, they they were all about the fish gods. I don't know. I mean, there's different gods for every day of the week, every conceivable thing. But all of these things come from somewhere created. So when human beings take the created realm and decide to make a, a god out of it, something weird starts to happen. When human beings who are made to worship the one and only God begin to create simulations of what they see and bow down to it, things start breaking really fast. What I mean, you can find in Romans chapter 1. I'm just going to skip there and talk about this briefly. I don't, I don't need to spend a whole lot of time here. 
because I think the idea is very simple, but it needs to be addressed while I'm talking about this. Romans chapter 1, Paul, writing a letter to the Romans, talks about what happens when humans begin to worship the created rather than the creator. I don't want to get too deep into this this passage, but basically Romans chapter 1, verse 20, God says, or, or Paul is writing and says that 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 those who suppress the truth suppress what God has clearly made known about themselves. Basically, they are without excuse. For verse 21, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So Paul is talking about those who suppress the truth of God and decide to worship not the creator, but the created and Paul says, when this begins to happen, when people reject the creator and worship the created, things break down. Things go awry. Verse 24, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. So when human beings begin to no longer worship their Creator, but instead begin to worship the creation of their hands, God gives them over to a debased mind. He basically says, okay, is this really what you want? Are you sure this is what you want? Okay, this is what you want. Here, you can have it. And when God says you can have it, they have it. And it's ugly. So when Moses receives the commandments... And God starts off right off the bat and, and says, do not carve yourself an image. Do not make yourself any kind of likeness of anything that you see. Don't make an artificial simulation of something you see around you. But you might, you might be tempted to think like, oh boy, then we better stop painting pictures of forests because we're making an image or we're making a likeness of a forest and, and God says, don't do that or bad things are going to happen. God's not talking about making artwork. He's got something bigger in mind. Art is good. Enjoying art is good. God made us creative just like he is and we we're supposed to express that creativeness in all sorts of ways and painting a picture of an apple or a flower or a person done for god and for god's glory is a good thing it's not about making a copy making an image of something created it's making an image of something created and bowing down to it. You might not think that a command like this would be necessary, but right off the bat, we find it is very necessary and very appropriate because it's basically the first thing Israel does when they think, Moses isn't coming back. For this, we've got to skip forward to Exodus chapter 32. 
they're they're waiting for Moses to come down the the mountain, right? He's been up there a long time. This is they don't even know what's happening. They're like, we we came here. We were supposed to go up with the mountain with God, and that was freaky. So we freaked out and said we couldn't do it. And so God said, okay, we're gonna take Mo- take Moses. You guys stay here, wait for him. Um, and now we haven't heard from Moses for a long time. And um, I'll basically pick it up from here. Verse 1 of chapter 32, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. So Aaron said, To them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. And all the people took off the rings and gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. So while God's giving these commands to Moses and he's having this encounter like no other with a man, it's Moses. And Moses is like straight chilling with the almighty God like no one else, like no one else. And he's up there a long time. I'm guessing you probably lose sense of time when you're chilling with God like that. But the people of Israel get antsy. They think, well, you know what? Um, He said he was coming back down. Uh, We don't know what happened to him. Maybe he fell off a cliff. Maybe he's dead. Maybe God killed him. You know, that's why we didn't want to go up there and meet with God, because he was probably going to kill us. Good thing we didn't go up there. And, uh, you know, who knows what was going through their minds. But they had decided that, you know what, Moses isn't coming back down, so we got to figure something else out here. It's time for us to make our own God. And how do they go about it? I don't even know how Aaron gets this idea, but he decides that he's going to get the gold from everyone and from their wives and their sons and daughters, going to melt it all together, and then he's going to use this engraving tool or whatever the tool was that he had to make something, probably something Egyptian that they just kind of had laying around like, hey, look at this. We have this in one of these sacks. Apparently, it's some sort of engraving tool. Aaron's like, "Okay, cool. I'll use that." And uh, I'm, I'm guessing, I'm guessing the calf was probably pretty ugly. It was probably Aaron's first calf that he ever uh, made out of molten gold. You know, maybe he's good at it. I don't know. Maybe he's good at it. I'm guessing if I, hopefully, I would never do that. But if I did do something, you know, that's stupid. That my calf would be horribly ugly, and one of his legs would look like a tail. But hey, this was Aaron's thing, and and maybe he was good at it. He had these tools to make this thing, and he makes a calf. You're just kind of wondering, why would you make a calf? Like, you know, and there's there's different theories about, you know, all these Egyptian gods that they would, you know, that they were um, worshiping back, you know, in the day that they, they, there was one of, the, one of the gods was named Apsis or something like that. But it, as far as it goes, yeah, sure, it, 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 it makes sense and, uh, you know, I don't have a problem with it. But I think there might be something more to this idea of a calf, a cow. So, I mean, imagine back... And I'm I'm talking more the irony of it. I, I don't know like the his, historical reasons why to, why to believe it was a you know an Egyptian god or something. I'm just talking about theologically theological irony. I guess I, I would say the kind of irony that God oftentimes will kind of layer into His word to kind of expose the intentions of man and and show them for what they really are and how twisted and backwards they can be. The cow, right? I mean, Adam and Eve, Adam was, was to name all of the animals, so he's bringing, you know, all of these different animals before Adam. Yeah, Adam, you know, sees the duck, says, yeah, that's the duck. 
you know, he sees he sees the ostrich. Yeah, that's the ostrich. He sees the gopher. That's the gopher. Then he gets to the cow, and he's looking at the cow. And I'm guessing, you know, God certainly knows. You know, Adam may or may not know. Maybe God says something. Maybe he doesn't. I don't know. But the cow is different than pretty much every single other one of the animals. The cow was going to be distinctly helpful in the burgeoning civilization of mankind. It would almost be like, you know, Adam, you're going to want to keep tabs on this one because you're going to want to use this one. You can use the ox, you know, for its strength. You can use different variations of the cow for their dairy to, you know, make milk and cheese and, and yogurt and all sorts of different things. And then other breeds you can you can you can use for for uh for eating the meat being you know i mean as far as an animal goes the cow was designed maybe more than any other animal to serve human beings god had created that animal that beast specifically to help make life better for human beings. Now, I realize that might, you know, rub some vegetarians wrong, but I'm guessing a lot of the things I'm saying would probably rub a lot of people wrong in various ways. The cow was a, a beast that was made to serve mankind. And here we are looking at the cow now, in our fallen state and thinking this is the God that got us out of Egypt, that got us out of slavery. And this is the God that's going to go ahead and go before us now. What's the nature of this God? Well, this God makes cheese and makes uh, really good steak and strong. So that makes sense, right? A God like that, that's what we want. Well, God warns exactly against this very thing. He says, don't look around you and see something and then make an image out of it and then bow down before it and worship it. Don't do that. That's a very bad idea. That will never be a good idea. It's a bad idea in the time of Moses. It's a bad idea in the time of Jesus. And it will be a bad, very bad idea at the time of the return of Jesus. This command to not make an artificial simulation of something that we see in the created realm and then bow down to it stands forever. It doesn't change. doesn't matter how good the technology is. doesn't matter how good our ability to make bricks and make cement or make computers or improve artificial intelligence. The command not to make an artificial simulation of something in creation and bow down to it stands and will stand all the way to the end. He kicks, it, he kicks off the, the Ten Commandments with this command, and he, this command carries all the way through to the return of Jesus. We've lost touch of this command in a lot of ways in our day. Like, I, I remember, you know, growing up, like, we never really knew which was, like, the 10th commandment. Like, wait a second. It's like, uh, one of the commandments is to not make an idol out of stuff. Like, that doesn't even make sense. Who does that, right? I mean, that's, like, something that doesn't make sense. But now we're finding more and more that it makes perfect sense because that's exactly what people are talking about doing, right? They're talking about digitally simulating all sorts of things that we see in nature. We're digitally simula simulating um, different um, landscapes and different experiences, where we look around and say, what do, we, what do we want to simulate? We want to simulate warfare. We want to simulate love. We want to, we want to simulate um, life and uh, social interactions. We want to simulate them online. We want to look around us and simulate the things that we see. Well, some of the other things we're trying to simulate is intelligence. 
And the road to intelligence begins at the lower levels of intelligence and rises through the ranks until you get to the higher levels of intelligence. And so right now we're able to digitally simulate, you know, I, I don't even know what, like insects and mice or something like that. Um, but soon it'll be birds and then dogs and then monkeys and then humans. And at some point, we're going to be tempted to bow down to the works of our hands. We're going to be tempted to say, wow, the thing that we've made is smarter than us. We should obey it. And if that thing tells us to worship it, we better obey it. That is the exact thing that God warns in Exodus 20 not to do. Don't make an artificial simulation of something you see and bow down and worship it. Don't do it. And as out of touch as we've gotten with that very command, it's about to come home in a very real, real way. This command not to worship a work of our hands is about to become very, very unpopular. And if we're not clear why it's unpopular, then we're going to get swept up into an incredible delusion in which we can never return from. But God makes a way. He makes a gate. He promises deliverance and power. He delivers, he promises wisdom in our greatest hour of need. He promises to carry us through any situation when we trust him. And that's the promise he's putting out to us now in this day and in this hour. And that's what I'm encouraging you saints to, to get a hold of. Take hold of God's word. Take it seriously. You can never take God's, ser God's word seriously enough. We need to see God's word proclaim God's word, and trust God. No matter what happens, he is, he's made it so that he is the only way of escape. That concludes this episode of Babylon Singularity. I want to thank you for tuning in. If you're looking to hear more from me, you can find me on Twitter as well as my website, BabylonSingularity.com. I've also authored a book titled Babylon, available on Amazon. I look forward to hearing any thoughts or feedback, comments that you may have to help me make this show better. I do hope it's a blessing to you. And... I hope that you'll tune in next time to Babylon Singularity.